Good evening. Praise God, we're awake. We have a special guest tonight. The Cathedral of Faith has requested that he come. This isn't his first time here. And I'm gonna read just a short bio. When I asked him, I said, so you're from the Holy Land Research Institute. He said to me what I love, I am the Holy Land Research Institute. He's a CEO and executive director of the Holy Land Research Institute based in Albuquerque, New Mexico and Majdal Shams, Golan Heights, Israel. But there's something else I wanna to read to you because this is his subject for us tonight. Thomas Winder began his undergraduate work and biblical archeology span career in 1992 at the Institute of Holy Land Studies, Jerusalem University. And listen to this. That is when he first discovered the real hilltop where the transfiguration of Jesus Christ took place. Come on, let's give God a hand of praise there. So what Professor Winder has for us tonight is where it's at and what happened there and why it happened. As you know, Jesus was transfigured before Peter, James, and John on that hilltop. And that's where God the Father said, this is my beloved son, identifying who Jesus is. And he'll explain what that statement meant. And then Moses and Elijah stood with Jesus. So I'd like for you to please stand with me. And I'd like to give Professor Winder a warm Cathedral of Faith San Jose welcome. <laughs> Professor Thomas Winder, thank you. Thanks, Mike. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Well, God bless everybody tonight. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Pastor Mike, for having me. And wherever Kurt Foreman is, love you, brother. Uh, Ten years ago when I was here, you can all sit down and relax. Uh, Ten years ago, I was just a lonely old archaeologist digging up the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, <laughs> they took a chance to have me, and we've been friends ever since. I'm just really, really pleased to be here. It's my honor, honestly. Well, I got off of the Sodom excavation, oh, about seven or eight years ago now, and, and the phone immediately rang, and, and I was enlisted to move to Israel to the top of the Golan Heights, to Mount Hermon, to a city called Majdal Shams, which is the capital of the Syrian Druzim. These are a minority Arab population that live on Mount Hermon that a thousand years ago moved to Mount Hermon to be left alone. They don't really like outsiders that much. They do, of course they do, but they, but they are fiercely independent. I sometimes I refer to them as the original Americans because they're like us, we came here to to do our own thing, and so that's why they moved to Mount Hermon to do their own thing. Well, it didn't take long to find out that because I'm an outsider, that I wasn't exactly welcomed, and the people that had set me up, uh, some of that was fake news, so my head was on the platter, and I was told, you better go home, because you're from the outside world, and, you know, you can come visit, but you can't stay. And I said, well, Lord, okay, you know, you got me into this mess. Uh, 
So it's up to you to get me out of this mess. And lo and behold, my daughter gave her testimony on Facebook. And so as a proud father of a daughter who found Christ, but actually Christ found her, as you know how that works, she gave her testimony. It was a ripper. And everybody in Majdal Shams saw my daughter's testimony and it reversed the curse. All of a sudden I was welcome. I was not any type of a threat whatsoever. The two main families of Majdal Shams actually uh, adopted me into their families and the mayor of the city made me the city archeologist. This is like miracle, miracle stuff. Only the, only the Lord, only the Lord can do that. Uh, can we have a picture up there? There it is, let's get started. So I ended up creating the Holy Land Research Institute. So now I'm not just a lonely little archeologist, I actually have my own institute. It sure sounds like a big deal, but you know, it's just me. So, you know, settle down. You'll, you'll find out I'm just a regular guy. But I want to read this to you. I published this in Bar Magazine a number of years ago. We once knew an archeologist who unquestionably needed a psychiatrist, who dug until one day he discovered the honorific unsynchronized millennial anomalies compromised of unattainable facsimiles culminating in forgotten cultural synchronicities. Astonished but proud of a find of a lifetime, Dr. Know-it-all says, hooray to this undeniable theoretical prognosis, which vindicates my higher critical hypothesis. Now, if you understood a single word of that, then you can be an archeologist too. Everybody can be an archeologist and you don't have to understand any of that, actually. So when I went to Majdal Shams, and as you can see the top of the mountain, that's Mount Hermon, not the one over here by Santa Cruz, okay? The real Mount Hermon, which the summit is the parallel of 33 degrees by 33 degrees. And some of you will instantly recognize that that has cultic significance. Mount Hermon is one of the holy mountains in our Bible, but we don't give it much credit. We all, we love to give credit to Mount Zion, to Mount Sinai, to Mount Carmel. You know, there's quite a few others, but we forget all about Mount Hermon. But Mount Hermon, when you read Genesis chapter six, you find out that that's where the bad angels came to planet Earth to have relations with the women. They bore children who became the men of renown, or in our case, we just simply call them the pagan gods. You know some of them, Baal, Moloch, Dagon, Chemesh, Pan, these are a few that are mentioned in our Bibles. Uh, they, okay, there it is. There were giants in the earth in those days and also after that. That's after the flood, there's giants again. 
When the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, the same became mighty men, which were old men of renown. The giants, the pre-flood giants, become the pagan gods. They literally rule the world. You can find them in Genesis chapter 6, Numbers 13, Deuteronomy 3, Deuteronomy and Joshua again. And then it says some of them even have six fingers and six toes in 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles. I know some of you still don't believe that there's giants, even though the Bible says so. <laughs> well, let me explain something. Here is the big toe of someone my size. Everybody see that? It's only about an inch and a quarter long. Now here is the same digit of another big toe. This one in my left hand is someone that the foot surgeons will tell you is 15 feet tall. This is a true big toe of one of the Nephilim, one of the biblical giants. They do exist, or at least they did exist, and some say that we're bound to run into them again in the end times. I'm not sure about that, but in Deuteronomy, it was clear that the Hebrews, when they were sent into the land of the Canaanites, the land of the pagans, they were given directions. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains, on the hills, under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars. These are called Asherim or Asherah poles. Burn their Asherim, cut down the images of their gods and obliterate their names forever. So there's a whole lot going on on Mount Hermon. Bad angels come down, they impregnate the women, the women have babies that become the giants of our Bible. And they rule the world and become the pagan fertility gods. All the pagan gods are fertility gods in one way or another. In fact, we see them repeated from one empire to the next, starts off with Ishtar, which is Baal's wife or, or counterpart. Ishtar becomes Astarte, who becomes Aphrodite, who becomes Venus. Same spirit, same pagan god, if you will, just a different look. They change their clothes, they give them another name, but it's the same pagan gods that keep going time after time. Now, we're going to talk tonight about what is referred to as the transfiguration. And for some reason, a couple thousand years have progressed since the time of Jesus, and no one has figured this out. If you read the commentaries, they will tell you that the transfiguration of Christ either took place where the Catholics say that it happened, which is 75 miles south on Mount Tabor, 
which is right next door to Megiddo, where we get Armageddon from. Okay, it's next to the Jezreel Valley with Nazareth on the other side. Or the commentaries will tell you that, well, it happened up on Mount Hermon somewhere. Somewhere up there. But no one, not one single theologian or academic person has figured this out. But since I was enlisted to go live in Majdal Shams on Mount Hermon, where all this stuff took place, well, I decided to continue my research that I had started at the Institute of Holy Land Studies in Jerusalem way back in 1992. So from Matthew 16, let me start reading from verse 6. And Jesus says to them, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He was upset because the disciples, after watching him just feed 4,000 people with a couple of box lunches, uh, they were complaining about where lunch was coming from the next day. So Jesus scolds them. He, today he would say, beware of the leaven of the Republicans and the Democrats. <laughs> Verse 7, they began to discuss this among themselves, saying, he said that because we did not bring any bread. But Jesus, aware of this, says, you men of little faith, why do you discuss amongst yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and all the baskets full you picked up or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many large baskets you picked up? How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? He's talking about a religious system that stops the people from having authority over the dark forces. It just keeps you in a box. And they understood that the leaven was not the bread, but the teachings of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, you have to know your map of Israel. You can always look on the back of your, of your Bibles. But they were down at the Sea of Galilee in Capernaum to feed the 4,000 when the disciples complained about where lunch was coming from. And now all of a sudden, they're in Caesarea Philippi. That's north. We find out in a minute that this is during the Feast of Tabernacles, which means everybody else in the entire region is going south to Jerusalem, except for Jesus and his misfits, if you will, that are going north. And they go to the district of Caesarea Philippi. And he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or at least one of the prophets. And then Jesus says to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter steps in, good old Pete, and he gets one right for the first time in his life. He says, he answers the question, he says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replies, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Ooh, not 
Peter, but blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Barjona means son of Jonah or son of the prophet. So, so Peter got a he got a very big uh, promotion because he answers the question right. Uh, he says, "You are Simon Barjona." Wow. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say that you are Petros. Now get this right. Not Kepha, which is Peter, but Petros, which is a little tiny pebble. So Jesus immediately is taking the swollen head of Dr. Peter who now is the son of Jonah, and you know he's, he's strutting his stuff, because he's, he's the son of a prophet now, man. Yes, sir. And so Jesus calls him Petros, which is a little tiny pebble, to deflate his swollen head, okay? And he says, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it and I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven that's authority to the rock whoever the rock is is it Peter boy you're gonna argue big time with the Catholics because they're gonna, they're gonna die over this. They will not change their mind. Is it Peter, or is it Peter's confession, or is it something entirely different? We'll get to that in just a minute. Let's, uh, let's see some pictures. So this picture is the gate to hell. That's what's there at Caesarea Philippi on Mount Hermon. And you can see the little niches on the side. I probably shouldn't have touched that one. <laughs> the little niches on the side that are carved in there and you see that the gate to hell is full of water. That's a big cave opening and it's a spring of water which starts the Jordan River. It is a very beautiful place. But this is the gate to hell because springs in the pagan days are the gateway or the doorways to the underworld. Everywhere there's a spring, that water is coming from down below. So it's coming from the underworld. So at every single cultic temple site or pagan temple site, there is a pit, or like this, a spring. So that's where they throw their offerings to their pagan gods. And here at the gate to hell, Pan, the goat demon, is worshipped. He is a miniature Baal. Same horns, same wings. Uh, this is directly from Azazel, one of the two captains of those bad angels that came to earth. Pan, 
and his uh, statue is being placed all over the United States of America as we speak, along with the Baal worship that you all see if you watched the halftime entertainment show for the, for the, for the Super Bowl, or the Grammy Awards. Did anybody see the Grammy Awards on TV? You will not forget the Satan worship that went on for their entertainment. The guy all dressed in red with the horns and all, the, all that debauchery. That's what was going on here at the gate to hell in worship of the goat demon Pan. Not only the perversion of open public orgy, but human sacrifice. This is the very gateway, if you will, or kitchen of the devil. On the mountain where all the pagan gods were manifested and ruled the world. Here's a great photograph. You can see this. Let me get my pointer out. I will push the wrong button on that. <laughs> okay, so you have a big ridge on the left. We'll call that the West Ridge. And there's a high place. There's another high place. And there's another high place. There are cultic temple sites all up the Western Ridge. And then you see a big ravine in the middle. And over here on the Eastern Ridge, you have more high places. Both ridge lines have multiple temple sites that were for worshiping Baal or his little misfit, uh, Pan. You know, we get words like pandemic from this guy and multitudes of others. Now, if you look down at the bottom of the picture, you see the parking lot at Caesarea Philippi where the gate to hell is. Right there at the bottom of the picture. Now, we know that they went for a short little walk up to a high lonely hill for the transfiguration. They did not walk 65 or 75 miles somewhere else. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. So they stay at Caesarea Philippi and when they walk, look at this. Where are you gonna walk? From the gate to hell, you're gonna go right straight up the ridge to this place right here, which today is Nimrod's fortress. If you're in a tour bus, you'll drive right past it. It's the biggest castle in Israel, and the Islamic people built it a thousand years ago to protect the Damascus Road, because that's the Damascus Road that goes right up that eastern ravine. Interesting, all the other temple sites all around the mountain all point to the one in the middle where Nimrod's fortress is today. But Nimrod's fortress was not there 2,000 years ago when Jesus walked the earth and took his disciples to Mount Hermon. Now we wonder, what is he doing going to Mount Hermon? Why does he go to the gate to hell? 
to declare his church. Are you with me? It's a pretty good question because people right now are finally writing books about this. Jonathan Kahn, Derek Gilbert, Michael Heiser, L.A. Marzulli. The list is long and strong about Baal worship and the pagan gods that are returning. You see, their bodies are all buried, but their spirits are still out to cause trouble. Because what is the devil here to do? Kill, steal, and destroy, amen? So that's what they are doing. So let's go on and let's read uh, Matthew chapter 17 because they go right straight up that hill from the gate to hell to what is now Nimrod's castle. I'll tell you what that is in a minute. Six days later, Jesus takes with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up to a high lonely mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Now all you have to do is go to Luke chapter 9, and you'll find out what they were talking about. Jesus, Moses, and Elijah are talking about the crucifixion and the resurrection. What's going to happen? They, it actually says they're talking about his departure in Jerusalem, which is six months later from this event. Moses and Elijah appear to them talking. Peter says to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. There's only one time out of the year that Jewish people put up tabernacles. They're called Sukkots. Only one time a year, that's the Feast of Tabernacles. No other time. That's why we know it's the Feast of Tabernacles, and these guys are not going anywhere. They are staying at Caesarea Philippi for the entire week of Tabernacles. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud says, this is my beloved son, who I am well pleased. Listen to him. You remember John the Baptist baptizes Jesus down on the Jordan River, and a voice came out of the atmosphere somehow, what does the voice say? Same exact thing. This is my beloved son who I am well pleased. That's the answer to the question. He's answering the question himself. And he's doing so with Peter, James, and John in the mix so they can see and hear this. By the way, they don't like this conversation. They do not understand that Jesus is going to get crucified. They certainly don't understand what being raised from the dead is all about. They don't like this conversation. In fact, Peter's the one that rebukes Jesus for saying that he's going 
to be crucified. And that's why Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Your mind is not on God's will, but your own. You see? Because they don't like finding out that Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem and be killed. Now this is the top of the mountain, the high lonely hill, where Nimrod's fortress is. Right in the middle of that hill, right there, is where the transfiguration took place. Now, how do I know that? Because what I discovered this last summer, after all these years of studying this, that hilltop, whoops, whoops, back, there it is. Okay, that hilltop, this is what you can find on that hilltop. This is a big chair. This is as wide as a couch and is about eight feet tall. That's Baal's throne. It is covered with, with broken columns, hexagon columns, no less, and cut stones that used to be a roof over the top of this chair. Baal's own throne, which of course works out well when you figure out why Jesus went to Mount Hermon. He went there to reverse the curse of the pagan gods for you and I. So he goes, how about that? So he goes, he literally goes from the gate to hell where Pan is worshiped. From there he walks up that trail, which by the way is still there to this day. The Park Service maintains it. In fact, it's a beautiful, beautiful trail. All of you are welcome to come to Israel and walk this very trail. And where does it go? Right straight to Baal's own throne. Wow. Theologically, that makes all the sense in the world. And theologically, it actually explains why Jesus is there in the first place and it explains all the archaeology in the region that points to Baal's throne. Here's another picture. This is another one of those high places. They all have the same motif. They all have cut stones laying around walls. They all have niches to put their statues of their pagan gods, and they all have pits, which were springs, which they dug out so this water would fill up, so they would have a doorway to the underworld where they could throw their offerings. And every one of their pits at every single one of these high places, there's also these walls that run around to identify the high places, and they all have direct eyesight to the one that sits all by its little self, Baal's own throne. They also have shaft tombs, where presume, you know, I presume this is where the giants were buried. They didn't just dig a hole in the ground, they cut tombs out of rock. And there's tons of these tombs everywhere. There's cut stones everywhere you look columns that used to hold rooftops up. 
things like this. That's a sacrificial altar stone. It's upside down, but that's where the Greeks would have been killing babies. Helios, right there in Greek. You know, he becomes Zeus later on. Now then, why Moses and Elijah? This is something else the theologians just leave alone. They don't know why, so they leave it alone. Well, so what did Moses do? Moses delivers the Hebrews out of Egypt, and they go to Mount Sinai. He gets the Ten Commandments, right? And when he comes down off the mountain, what does he find his people doing? Worshiping the golden calf bull, which is the symbol of fertility, the fertility gods of Egypt. And you know what happened to those people that went back to their pagan ways, having the big party like they did, they all got eliminated. Now, what does Elijah do? Elijah has a similar situation with the pagan gods of Jezebel and Ahab, and he has the famous barbecue competition in 1 Kings chapter 17. Incredible story about Elijah telling the prophets of Baal, 850 of these guys. He says, you set up your, your barbecue, put your fatty calf on there, and you call your gods, you tell them to light the fire for you. And if they do, then you guys can have your barbecue and go home fat and happy. And I'll do the same thing over here. I'll build my barbecue. And I'll put my fatty calf on it. Oh, but I'm going to build a moat around mine and soak it with about 600 gallons of water just to make things even. And you know the rest of the story, right? The pagan gods cannot call down fire. They keep trying and trying and trying. They can't do that, right? So they, they're hungry and they get eliminated because of course God sends fire down to Elijah's barbecue and he wins the tournament, hands down, hands down. So you have Moses, the Hebrew overcomer. He overcomes the fertility gods of Egypt. You have Elijah who overcomes the fertility the pagan fertility gods of Mesopotamia. So they're both overcomers. But did you know that Elijah is not Jewish? Did you know that Elijah is a Gentile? Most people don't know that. But it says in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1, it says, Elijah the Tishbite. He's not Hebrew. He's one of us. <laughs> He's a Gentile. So you have the perfect picture of the church during the transfiguration. You have Christ as the head of the church with the Hebrew and the Gentile overcomers of the sinful nature of mankind, right? That's the church. 
you and I are supposed to be overcomers. When you get redeemed, when you get born again, you are given supernatural powers. You are given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That's the mandate for the assembly of believers, the church. Are you not the body of Christ? 1 John 3, 8 says, Christ came, was manifested to destroy the works of the devil. We, as overcomers, are supposed to do the same. Now watch this. I know my, you're perfect timing, brother. Perfect timing. I love, I love that, it get me right in the mood. So watch this. When Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my church assembly and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, who is the rock? We, you and I are the rock. I used to think maybe Jesus was going upon this rock, referring to himself, but I was wrong. And I'll tell you why I was wrong. Because in Isaiah chapter 51, verse 1, it says, listen to me. Isn't that what God tells us to do? Listen to him? He says, listen to me, you who follow after righteousness, you who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the hole of the pit from which you were dug. We came. That's right, all of us, every single one of us, okay, used to serve the other side. Or am I the only one? I must be the only sinner in here. Boy, I didn't think I was by myself. I know I'm not the Lone Ranger this time, okay? Because we all used to serve ourselves or the other side. We used to serve the darkness until Jesus brought us into the light. And Jesus is the one that transfigured himself into the light. We are the children of light. We are the rock that has full authority to tell the devil, get behind me, Satan. You are no longer in control of this body and this person. Each and every one of us is the rock that Jesus is talking about. I think that's remarkable. I think it absolutely answers the question. Matthew 17, he was transfigured, transfigured rather before them. His face shone like the sun and his garments became white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. A bright cloud overshadows them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud says, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. You and I 
used to serve the other side. But we don't anymore. We don't anymore. We are the rock. We are the rock. This is a picture of Caesarea Philippi. This is a painting that was done way back in the 1600s. And you see the road, that's the road to Damascus, going right straight through Caesarea Philippi. In fact, this building is still there today. And look at the high, lonely hill behind it, right? This is what it looks like today. Same high, lonely hill with Nimrod's fortress up there, which would not have been there before, and the same building that was on the Damascus Road. You and I have an incredible opportunity to serve the Son of the living God. He is indeed the Messiah. He is the Holy One of Israel. And all you have to do is say, Lord, come into my life. Help me to be an overcomer. Help me, give me the Holy Spirit. Give me the juice. Give me the power and the authority to kick the devil out of my life, to kick the devil out of my family's life, out of the city's life, out of the church's life, out of the state of California. Each and every one of you is a hero. You're the heroes. You're going to change the world. Jesus did not come and pick a bunch of holy rollers to follow him. He didn't pick out a bunch of holy rollers and say, you guys pick up your cross and follow me. No, no. He came for ordinary men and women to be the body of Christ on planet Earth while he's not here. You are the rock. You have the authority. Amen. If there's anyone here tonight, if there's anyone here tonight that is not surrendered your life to the Holy One of Israel, to the Messiah, to Jesus the Messiah, the Christ. I give you this opportunity tonight. Is there anyone here that would like to give their lives over? Are you sick and tired of serving the wrong side? Now's the time to serve the correct side, to serve the light. Come out of the darkness into the light. All you gotta do is raise your hand or stand up if there's anyone here. Now's the time. Now's the time. Because that's what Jesus came here for. He came through a virgin to be raised as Emmanuel and then Yeshua HaMashiach. He came here to save, to save us. He came here to save us. He came here to give his life to clean your life with his pure blood from Calvary and the resurrection, which is coming very, very shortly. We are on the countdown to the resurrection. Amen. <laughs> Praise God for that. Praise God for that. By the way, uh, there's exciting things much more exciting things probably than, than my discoveries in the world of biblical archaeology. Uh, come sign up for my uh, Digging Deeper updates. Give me your email and I can 
put you on the subscribers list, keep you up to date with some of the most remarkable finds in all of history. Really, really cool stuff that verifies the biblical text. The Bible is true. It is accurate. You can depend on it. You can rely on it. It is the Word of God. Business cards up here. You can tap into my website. Some, uh, some empty envelopes. Thank you very much for coming tonight. Let's pray. Will everybody bow your heart? Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that you've opened our ears. You've opened our eyes. Best of all, you've opened our hearts so that you can enter in. You are the light, and you enter into these bodies and give us the supernatural abilities to be overcomers, to be that light. Let us shine, Lord. Give us a double portion of that light so that lost people would be, would be lured to us to see what that light is all about. We thank you that you paid the price for our redemption. And we are so happy to be redeemed sinners, the rock. And we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Come on, let's thank God for Professor Thomas Winter. Come on, let's thank God. I told you, brother. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the faithfulness of this congregation that they were here to hear this truth. I ask that they remember these things that you enlighten them and let them be locked in their mind. I ask that you bless them. Let them be warm and dry tomorrow. Let them sleep good and warm tonight and let them know your love. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Good night, church. We love you.